Registrations are now open for the 6th Bioceuticals Research Symposium to be held in Melbourne from the 27th to the 29th of April 2018. Keynote speakers will include Professor Terry Walls, Dr Amy Myers, Professor Yehuda Schoenfeld and Dr Elisa Song. Book your ticket now by visiting bioceuticals.com.au and clicking on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us today is Dr. David Harsey, who received his medical training at Vanderbilt University, completing his residency in family medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. He's board certified in family medicine and integrative holistic medicine. Early in David's clinical practice, he realised that something very important was missing. He went to medical school so he could better understand and address the root causes of illness and dysfunction and thereby facilitate the creation of health for individual patients. Instead, what he found his training was largely limited to was naming disease, that black box that we call diagnosis, blaming disease, the context had nothing to do really with the problem, and taming disease, often with powerful drugs not tailored to the unique genetics of the individual. To fill the void, he sought out additional medical training and certifications in nutrition, integrative and holistic medicine, functional medicine, health coaching, neurofeedback, systems biology, genomics, bioinformatics and precision medicine. By identifying and treating the unique root causes of their conditions, Dr. Hasi saw remarkable improvements in his patient's health. And you are, I've got to say, the salt of the earth. Dr. David Hasi, welcome to FX Medicine. How are you? Oh, it's so great to be here. Uh, I'm very thankful to share this time with you and feeling feeling great. Excellent. I, I've got to say, I so enjoyed having you speak at the symposium. Now, gosh, was that two or three three years ago now? And and indeed, um, uh, when I, when my wife and I left early in the morning, we had to drive away, and you were already up. <laughs> Do you remember that that final meeting? You were in the lobby. Waiting for a plane? I do. <laughs> I do. Exactly. And uh, one of the other things I remember from that symposium is me nearly passing out on stage. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If, if you recall, I right? Recall. Because all of a sudden, I, I, yeah, it's right. Because, you know, here's the time lag. And I didn't really, and I took in far more of Sydney than I maybe should have before the symposium <laughs> began. <laughs> and it got far too little sleep. And so here I was giving a lecture on brain function. And all of a sudden, everything starts to go quiet. And the, <laughs> the lights start to get dim. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I'm going down. And, <laughs> you know, I think it was just the energy of the crowd itself <laughs> that kept me sustained and able to go on. But uh, I developed a huge respect for all of you down under that travel the states for education, because, oh my gosh, what a, wow, what an experience to be well, up there, uh, well, lecturing about the brain and having, losing my own, right? <laughs> from, a, from a clinical perspective, though, there's nothing like a health practitioner having the symptoms that their patient experience to really have a full appreciation of what their patients go through. Uh, you know, and, and I was I was really quite enamoured by the way that you came back. I've got to say, because you pulled it together like a like a Trojan. <laughs> well, thank you. It was a great energy and just the the best uh, best people on earth there. Oh, thank uh, it was you. a deep joy to be there. Yeah. Now I've got to say, um, reading your bio. Holistic medicine, functional medicine, health coaching, neurofeedback, systems biology. Do you have a life outside of your clinic? <laughs> yeah, this is that's called applied attention deficit disorder. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. What sculpted this? Like, like uh, you know, we've gone through that. You, you know, you really sort of realise the the limitations of the orthodox medical model. But what, what was it that tweaked your interest to look further? 
rather than just falling into the, you know, what I call hamster medicine. You go to work, you do, you see your patients, you come home, you go to work. What twigged you to, to, to search further, to look deeper? Well, I, unlike many of my colleagues in integrative and functional medicine who have a, a disease or a, a personal health challenge that draws them in this field, that was not the case for me. Yeah. Um, I just became disillusioned with a, this beautiful science, this amazing science of Western medicine, incredible biology and genetics and, and all these systems and the subspecialties. And yet not seeing a theme where it all fit together. Mm. I mean, it literally didn't fit together. And I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. I'm a very, I have a very practical family that was always focused on doing what is wise and works. And, and I didn't see that same drive necessarily present. Instead, it was do what your superiors tell you to do. Do what we've always done. Uh, follow the rules. And, and it hit me over the head one day that we actually call it medical training. We yes. don't really call it medical education after the first two years. And, uh, and, that, and that's the whole idea. And instead, we should, be, we should be really continuing the education, continuing to figure out this mystery of the human. So I can't say that there is any one event that happened for me. It was just a deep satisfaction with a reductionistic view of the world because it didn't seem to describe reality. And, and I don't have much time for things that aren't real. And so how has that evolved your practice? Well, um, started with, you know, I started the evidence-based medicine club, uh, at Mayo Clinic actually. Yeah. And, uh, and that's when I got disillusioned with conventional healthcare because there's so little that we actually had evidence for yes. to promote. And so that got me looking. Uh, I had my conversion experience at the hands of Jeff Bland, you know, over 20 years ago now. Mm. And, uh, and I was like, ah, here's everything the system. Yep. And then I started to look at things as a system. And pretty soon, once you've done some biological evaluations and understanding, then you realize, wow, so much of this is lifestyle. So I sought out um, uh, the best health coach I could find, and this was gosh, now 15 years ago, and the term health coaching was not a popular term yet, and um, dove into that model of healthcare. And so I came from this place of having allopathic training and functional medicine training, uh, being trained as a health coach, and still having people that despite really good intentions and having good resources of of society, of money, of influence, they still couldn't cross the barrier. And they had one thing in common, and that was the brain. Their brain is what held them back. Either they had an attention issue, an anxiety issue, a mood issue, a memory issue. And and for me, that that switch flipped about 12 years ago, and everything became brain-centric. Because if we can help somebody have a healthy brain, then everything else is going to follow. And then, interestingly enough, everything else, the rest of the body, is what enables the brain to be healthy. So yeah. it's this bi-directional network. So that's, uh, that's, and that's where I've been and continue to grow and try to figure out what's the most direct path for any one particular person to get well in the deepest way possible. Um, that's, that's the quest. So, so I guess part of that is, you know, how we talk about the, you know, the gut brain axis and the HPA axis. And do you sometimes open up these rabbit holes within rabbit holes with regards to where you can treat? Um, or do you tend to stratify oh, in a certain way? No, you know, I think the whole idea of an axis uh, is useful for letting us know a few things are connected in a deep way. Right. Like the hypothalamic, the pituitary, adrenal axis. That's a useful idea, but it's not reality. Right. Uh, what the reality is that all of those organs and systems uh, also are inside a greater whole. And so when we approach things from a systems medicine standpoint, from a functional medicine standpoint, the whole goal is to recognize that we as humans are networks of networks. We are systems of systems. Yep. 
And we have hubs that are very, that are malleable, hubs that are influential with regard to our health. And so the quest here is not to find and treat everything, but it's really to find what's the most influential hub that we can intervene upon so that we shift the health of the system as a whole. And, and that's where I think the art and the science are converging. Right. Um, we're working on a, an augmented intelligence platform right now with some IBM engineers. And oh. it's fascinating to see wow. how we start thinking about organizing our thoughts of what is the most direct way to help somebody create health mm. in their particular situation. Yeah. I have a real bias against somebody saying, oh, everything begins in the gut. Yeah. Well, those are the people who know a lot about the gut. Yeah. yeah. And then there are the, the hormone docs and everything. Oh, you know, you know, you got to fix your hormones and everything's going to be okay. Mm. And then, and then you have structuralists who say, man, as long as you get your spine aligned, everything's going to be good. And then you have, you know, just pick whatever group. You've got your mitochondrial people saying everything's energy. Yeah. Well, no, reality is reality. Yeah. And what it happens to be for that individual, that's the interesting thing. That's where the opportunity lays in, in, changing, in changing the trajectory of health. I am so enlightened by you saying that because I've, I've seen the, the natural medicine community fall down the same sort of issues that we castigate orthodox medicine for, and that's the compartmentalism. And I've seen us doing it, you know, over the last 15-odd years. I've seen natural medicine do that themselves. Oh, I specialise in fertility, or I specialise in hormones. I spoke to one doc who thought that cortisol was the the next panacea, was the answer to everything. And, um, you know, I really had these worries in my brain going off, going, oh, this is too good to be true sort of thing, you know? So I'm so en so encouraged <laughs> to hear you say that we've got to get back to the reality, and that is the patient in front of you. So I've got to ask yeah, them. So oh, 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 that was really, that was really well said. And, and that, and, and we, and when we lose sight, now all of those things, cortisol and hormones and the gut and the brain, Hey, I fall into this bias with the brain. Like mm. I already said, I'm giving you my bias. I'm a mm. brain-centric mm -hmm. functional medicine doctor, right? And so it's okay to have those biases, but you need to recognize them. And then you have to sit back and say, you know what? If something's really powerful, that means it's a hub. It's a hub. Yeah. It doesn't mean it's everything, but it yep. doesn't mean it's connected to a lot of things. So it doesn't mean we have to throw out those people's good ideas and intentions and insights, but instead recognize that it's integrated into a larger whole where we could, that we can only see with the help of our colleagues who think differently. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to ask you this question. It's basically to clear up something for me. You and Dr. Andrew Heyman changed this for me. And that is this, this two words, adrenal fatigue. What's the correct <laughs> term? What should we be really saying? Well, adrenal fatigue, I think, is such a powerful term because there's this mystery organ buried somewhere inside of you, and it's tired. Yeah. And, that, and, and, it, and it really, I think, speaks to kind of a Chinese medicine -like view of this. The, the jing, right? The life force yeah. seems to be have, have eroded from us, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a powerful uh, even marketing term or educational term. Uh, yes. But when we really step back and we look at adrenal fatigue, it has much more to do with brain fatigue. You know, this is the, it is the, it's the signaling systems that seem to be primary in this entire process. And, and our, uh, our shifting hormones occur in a way to protect the system that we can live another day. That's what we um, fall into a misunderstanding of oftentimes. We think that the changes that are seen are pathologic and really they're, they're adaptive. So if an individual is being absolutely catabolic, they're breaking apart at the seams uh, with huge amounts of inflammation, well, cortisol is going to rise to, to meet that need. Mm. And, um, and then there can be additional adaptations that um, the, the brain basically says, okay, we've had enough of sending out that signal. 
Uh, that has been exhausted as a neurologic signaling system. And now we're going to pull back on how much cortisol is made. And to make the adrenal glands the center of it is to misunderstand just how incredibly resilient the adrenal glands are. Rarely, there's very few individuals who die of Addison's disease, um, which is a, a pathologic variant of that. But, yeah. but it's, uh, it sometimes we get trapped. I mean, these concepts are wonderful. And I do not want anybody who's done good for their patients or themselves using these concepts. Uh, boy, I don't want to dis, uh, I don't want to uh, disenfranchise them or say anything, but I think it's important to recognize the brain is what's really central yeah. in this whole adrenal fatigue issue. So can I ask, like, you know, there was this uh, concept, if you like, and forgive me, was it Hans Salier who started the, 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 adaptation sort of syndrome um, um, yeah, theory. General yeah, general adaptation syndrome. General adaptation th- syndrome, thank you. Um, but are the adrenals actually affected by weight? Do they actually, quote-unquote, shrivel or lose their um, their potential to secrete herbs? Or is it really the hippocampal and other areas of the brain which, are, which physically um, decrease in volume when you're under chronic stress? Do we need to change that term, adrenal fatigue? Well, I think that, like, <laughs> the term is useful if we recognize it has limits. Right. If everybody that comes in with, uh, with tiredness is now labeled with adrenal fatigue, that's inappropriate. But if we step back and look at that, there is modification in the zona glomerulosa and the zona reticularis. And, uh, in long-term stress. That is adaptation. Uh, so there is a both and, but there is also tremendous adaptation in the hippocampus. Now, you know what I find even more interesting than the general adaptation system is, is what happens as a result of early life stressors. You know, uh, an early life stressor, either in the womb or a mother who is depressed during the early years or a violent uh, upbringing or surrounding, that will induce a epigenetic change in the hippocampus, selectively in the hippocampus. Matter of fact, it, it induces a hypermethylation of the glucocorticoid receptor genes in the hippocampus, effectively decreasing the effectiveness of the off switch for stress. Right. So, when we when we're asking about these things of adrenal fatigue and um, and and, uh, and tiredness and hippocampal atrophy, you know, we do a lot of uh, volumetric MRI analysis in our practice, now, mm-hmm. along with quantitative EEG analysis. So we're looking at the physical structure of the brain and measuring that. And there is we need to step back and think of not just what toxic environment is present in these last months or years, but where was this individual come from? And where did their parents come from? We now know that there's, especially their mother, there are generational effects here. So I think early life trauma uh, is actually a much more important thing to recognize and to address the autonomic nervous system and the, uh, the general adaptation of the autonomic nervous system and there, we can make huge changes rapidly. If we nurture the autonomic nervous system, you see very rapid shifts in um, adrenal hormone secretion. If you deal with sleep cycle abnormalities and oxygen deprivation and inflammation, you see the adrenals respond um, as, as would be appropriate for a new environment. But I don't think that, I don't think they're mainly primary. I think the adrenal Actions tend to be responsive yeah. to the rest of the body uh, in that way. Mm. I, I want to delve into some of the testing that you do because I was just awestruck by the stuff that you do for your patients um, at the symposium a couple of years ago. But firstly, you mentioned cortisol before, and as I said, you know there, there was the cortisol fad here in Australia that it was this seemed to be this treatment for everything. Um, but you and Andrew Heyman, as I said, you, you really shook, shook the pillars and said, guys, wake up. You know, if, if you think that you should be giving cortisol to raise cortisol when it's low without looking at why 
cortisol is out of balance. Um, you know, you can really go down a quite a dangerous path with regards to, you know, a latent infection, um, let's say. But with regards to symptomatic treatment, particularly regarding hormones, I guess, or those things that affect hormones, do you tend to w go one, one step further back and talk about nourishment and, you know, exercise and relaxation and get that really honed first before instituting these changes of um, endocrine function, or do you do it all at once? Well, uh, we have many different art pieces in our office of onions. I love onions. Yeah. I love the idea of peel the onion. You know, you, you, you start with the layer that's right in front of you because you really don't know what layer is actually going to be necessary. And the first layer is, of course, belief systems. What does that individual believe about themselves and their health and how they're approaching this clinician-patient relationship mm. and, and how they're going to engage together? Yep. You know, that if you really want to make you know, light-year changes, address somebody's belief systems, and then amazing things can happen. Right. Then, and then we... Then, and then we go to uh, behavior. You know, what is going on? And remember, my foundation's in health coaching. I think that the inspiration, education, and support, that's the fundamentals, right? It's a fundamentals. You don't have any business really going on if you haven't nailed those fundamentals. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, oh, yes, we do some amazingly interesting tests in metabolomics and proteomics and genomics and brain mapping, but we don't do that for everybody. You know, that's people that typically get to me have already been to quite a few other docs. Mm -hmm. And you know, the first thing we have to do is a record review. <laughs> so we right. actually look at the other information they've already gotten done, which there's a lot of data there oftentimes, right? And but um the the lifestyle is so important. Sleep, exercise, the quality of the food, the experience of eating, even just how our you want to go back right to adrenals and, and sympathetic upregulation. Mm. If you're jacked up and, and nervous and rushing and shoveling food down your mouth uh, at the time of every meal, you're not inducing, you're not allowing the parasympathetic nervous system to create the enzymes in the saliva. You're not inducing you know, good gastrin secretion, hydrochloric acid secretion, you're not allowing that gallbladder to squirt out. It's, it's magic. The pancreatic juices to flow. And you're not allowing adequate peristalsis to occur. And, and so that's a mind-body issue. So simple, simple interventions such as awareness. If nobody's ever thought of this, they, they can't ever actually change. So a baseline educational program of what are the fundamentals of health has to be the foundation. And, and why would you use nutritional supplementation? Well, it's the word, why you use it is right in the word itself. It's yes. supplemental. <laughs> you know, the idea that this should be your plate. No, <laughs> but because we know the body runs on raw materials mm. and uh, having the right raw materials present enables a more effective metabolism and engine. You know, that's, there, there's so much utility there for rebalancing of the system, but not without the context of effective lifestyle interventions. So, so that's, I, and I think we missed the boat. And then I'll tell you, there are health coaches also that run this problem of bias, where that's all you need to do. If you only change your lifestyle and diet, you do these things, then, then this should be fine because those are the individuals who often came to this entire realization because that's what worked for them. And I think, and uh, so we can get trapped even in the lifestyle mm, mm. assertion. That's our own practitioner bias. That's very so, interesting. <laughs> right. And, mm. I, and I think maybe because I didn't come to this field uh, because of a personal transformation, I don't have that particular experiential bias that occurs, mm. which can be wonderful healing for the individuals that are served by those practitioners. So, again, not to disparage it, 
but to just acknowledge it. Again, you know, I love what you're saying because I'm not a religious person, but I do believe there was a function for religion way back, and that was to knit communities together and society together. And one of these, or a few of these practical things is when you're sitting down to the table saying grace. And people think that's a religious thing. I'd like to move that forward into the 21st century about what is it pushing, you know, engaging your parasympathetic nervous system, pushing away the day's stresses and leaving them, you know, just just having a white light around you and your meal and just really focusing, as you said, that awareness of the food. So I've got to ask you, how well do you find this works for an overweight diabetic or pre-diabetic truck driver who's just given up smoking because his doctor said he was going to die and he's not happy and he's finally made his way to you. How do you change or get in, get under their skin to really look at these simple interventions that are really alien to so many people? Well, first of all, I just have to say a big amen. (laughs) 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 When you're talking about, you know, this idea that, yeah, creating space at the beginning of your meal for gratitude, for an acknowledgement of safety, for an acknowledgement of community. You know, I love what you said, you know, the white light that surrounds us here. Um, that is, man, I feel my digestive juices moving. Just you saying that. <laughs> but it very much is. We have this amazing bi-directional interface. We talk about the brain-gut access. Well, wow, is mm. that not a powerful component to the brain-gut access? We're using our mind to shift our sympathetic nervous zone and our parasympathetic nervous zone and allow our digestion to occur in a way that now is going to create molecules and information that's going to nurture the brain again. It's a beautiful feed-forward cycle, this grace. And, and I also find it fascinating that going back to all kinds of traditions, most of the monastic traditions have some type of a rosary, some type of a chant, and those and the pacings of those breathing patterns Ah. often correspond with the type of patterns that augment parasympathetic nervous activity. So it's a, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So it's a, so it's a exactly. I, I listened to the family radio rosary hour for yeah. hours uh, when I was trapped in the dairy barn as a child, and, yeah. and I couldn't reach the radio model. So I understand these things. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to ask, I... I I know this is going back to the future sort of thing, but you're growing up on the farm. I mean, you know, you tend to be rather pragmatic about dirt, excreta, you know, poo, because you have to clean the stables, you have to clean up the yards. And then you you tie it in with this um, old friends theory. Do you think that that really, really um, not resonated with you, but but helped you? Like, do you think that pragmat- pragmatism oh from just doing oh, stuff? This is, I practice ag... Absolutely. I practice agricultural health care. <laughs> I mean, if you think about how a good farmer approaches the land, well, that's exactly the way a good, functional, integrative, holistic, you know, a, a provides focus on creating health. If you want to create the bounty of the land year after year, you have to nurture that. You bring in good things to the land. You prevent the land from being eroded. You, you hold back the seed from... Uh, excess stress, mm. and and then you get a bounty year after year, and and that is exactly the model of how do we create health? It is really nurturing. It is a cultivation of health, and that gives us incredible opportunity. And I do think that our removal from the land, our urbanization, and our really alienation from things that are real and natural has shifted our mindset away from what is real yeah. and, and how you approach things that are real and how do you approach those things with humility. You know, I can't stand the word control. When people say, oh, well, I can't control my weight, and we can get to your trucker in a, uh, in a, question, in a second here, yeah. but I can't control my weight. All I have to do is say, you're absolutely right. You cannot control your weight, but you can influence it. Right. We have to become creatures that, that embrace influence 
and abandon the idea that we can control. Control is a reductionistic model. Control is a, is a allopathic yeah. linear model. Yeah. Influence is a systems-based model. So much right, in right. even the language so, sorry, we I, use. I, I, I digress. No, it's not a digression. I think it's really interesting. And there was another word that you said there. Lise Altschler constantly reminds me of this. And it's it's just her natural vernacular. It just flows out of her like a, like a breathing in and breathing out and saying the word gratitude. And it's something that I constantly, mm. and here's another word that I need to get rid of, wrestle with. How's that one? Um, but it's something that I constantly remind myself. I say, dude, you know, you've got to be have gratitude for what you have in your life. I mean, I have a wonderful family. I live in a great place on earth with a beach three kilometers away. It's not like I'm doing doing it tough, you know, like, and there is so much that I have to be grateful for in my life. And we so often get caught up. I so often get caught up in the day-to-day stressors, got to go here, haven't done this. What about that? And we forget to give true gratitude to the base things that we have around us. And then we wonder why we're caught up in this sympathetic drive. Exactly. We have, we have this neocortex. We have a neocortex that can create reason and even create hallucinations of gratitude. You know, let's, <laughs> you know we get to create our story. And we can create a story yeah. of gratitude, yeah. or we can create a story of, of fear and of need and of want and of oppression. It, it is up to us to craft the story that is most useful to us. That is, that is, our, that is our responsibility and our freedom, yeah. and that they go together. Well done. Well said. So with that, when you've got somebody that's got the negative mind talk going on, you know, the constant ber- self-beration or the constant self-worry, you know, what's, what are those, the words you, that you should never say is should. <laughs> the word that you should never say is should or could. Um, you, you know, I, I choose to or not, you know, that sort of thing. Um, how do you change somebody's self-talk, their inner dialogue? Mm, wow, that's a great question. And the, you know, the answer is you can't. I can't change it. It's always they that do the end of, that they are the ones who do the change. Right, yes. And so I can seek to influence it. Right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and the influence the, the influence I would seek in that area is to help them access their salience. So salience is a neurologic term. Salience means this matters. The brain is constantly sorting out information. As you're listening to this, you probably don't feel the weight of your feet on the floor, right? Yeah. And it's, it's, but that inf- now you do. Yeah. Now, because I called your attention to it, you are now aware of your weight of your feet on the floor. It is becomes salient because it's part of the conversation, right? right? But you right. still don't feel you still don't feel the wetness of your tongue, which now you do, of course. Right. But I, that's just hard. <laughs> the salience is what matters, and. When individuals are seemingly trapped in their repeated life cycles, the the first thing to do is to ask them to engage in creating salience around that. And I do that by asking them the question, um, what is your health for? And, And what is your health for? And 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 uh, so oh I've I've written a book. Uh, it's actually uh, I put a book plug in right now because yeah, yeah. there's actually a little tool in the book uh, that actually helps this. It's called Curiosity Heals the Human. And and Curiosity Heals the Human actually goes through this exercise in written form. So if that's helpful to anybody out there, and 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 the exercise is you know what do you want your health for. And then when they give an answer, you just simply set back and go, oh, that's great. Yeah. So and what's important about that? Right. And what's important about that? And yeah. keep digging about why, why was that? But if you keep digging, you're going to get to a layer of identity. You're going to, they're going to get to I am statements. They're going to say, I am, I, I am a good father. Right. In order to be a good father, in order to be a provider, in order to be a man of faith, in order to be 
a good citizen in order to be, they're going to come down to an identity that matters for them. And now they have accessed an infinite source of energy for positive change. Mm. But until, now some people walk in the door with that knowledge. They're walking in the door fearful of their life, but they, and they may even have tapped into the meaning and purpose and identity. And those individuals are so potent. And you, <clears throat> you sort through their needs mm. and you will come down to this amazing occurrence. You know, they create health so rapidly because they engage so deeply. But the individuals who don't quite know why they're there really uh, will never take off until they recognize they are worth it and that their identity, their meaning is enough to fuel the changes that they need to make. And, um, and, and it may not be kind of what you're asking, but to me, it's, if you're really going to help people change, like I said, you, know, you can do all the fancy tests under the world. You can make all the most complex recommendations. But until you can know who that person is and honor them mm. and, and not do this exercise in a manipulative way, yes, I mean, I've created it here as kind of a formulaic way, but it's, it's just training wheels for being that clinician that wants to know the deepest parts of the patient so that you can speak into their heart and their soul as they're making these most monumental efforts to change their health and their well-being. Wow. So it's a, it's a wonderful tool. Um, it, it, it changed, changed my practice. Yeah. Words of yeah. wisdom, David. And that, now, all came, and that all came from health coaching, Mark. That all came from the world of health coaching. Wow. That didn't come from the world of medicine, even integrative medicine. That came from this idea of the of uh, being the being the partner with this fellow sojourner. Yeah, yeah. And and that model shifted how I looked at medicine and being an MD uh, from that time forward. Hmm. Talking now about how that affects the physical, though, with regards to neuroplasticity, especially when the patient is set with broken circuitry. I remember this quote that you said at the symposium um, a couple of years ago, and that was, neurons that fire together, wire together. So again, I'm going to sort of be this, please help, you know, sort of how long do you find um, it takes to affect a change I guess, with a habit. Um, and does that change stick when, you know, do you actually rewire permanently um, the circuit board or do you have a, a broken circuit board that's been patched up and so therefore it can break again? Um, you know, I guess we're Ooh. talking here about, you know, old, old habits die hard. You know, how reticent do these patients have to be from then on about giving honor to themselves and being present and, um, uh, you know, having gratitude for where they are in their life. Do you find that there's this constant reminder going on that they've got to sort of say, oh, it's, you know, six monthly. Uh Oh, I know what's happening. <laughs> I'm falling back into the bad habits. <laughs> oh, uh, you've asked, you have asked a mouthful there because <laughs> yeah. the, because I've spoken to bias several times as I've been yep. in, on this call already. And bias to me is not a dirty word. Bias is more of our pattern. Bias is, is our, our electrical set points that we have in our brain. You're right. Neurons that fire together or wire together. Whatever we think, whatever we do, whatever we do on a repeated basis, we start to soft wire those pathways to become more and more electrically efficient and therefore, the brain is almost always going to seek the most electrically efficient answer to whatever is in front of it. And I think if we think of our habits as brain ruts, as literally electrical patterns that have been created, and that there are associations, there are triggers, there are, there are backdrops to a habit. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Nothing exists in a vacuum. The brain is an amazing network of networks, a hundred billion neurons 
and you know, a, you know, a, a thousand trillion synaptic connections. It's unbelievably complex. And so, when we make these statements about a, a brain connection or a synaptic connection, we always have to recognize it's happening in the context of a larger whole. Right. And therefore, any changes that we make can be reinforced from a multitude of directions and can be distracted from a multitude of directions. So um, when one of the common things that we do in our practice is we do quantitative EEG. A quantitative EEG is we put a cap on the brain, or we put a cap on the head, and we measure the electricity coming off of the scalp. That's the EEG, yeah. often used for diagnosis of seizures. You can use that same information and put it through an FDA uh, registered algorithm, a database of average normal brains, or a database of high performance brains, and get a brain map, get a picture of the internal electrical activity and the internal electrical associations in the brain and find where are their pockets of inefficiency. Where are there pockets of static? Where is this brain electrically not at the potential it can be? And then, through the process of neurofeedback, you can train the brain, much like you can train yourself to play piano or train yourself to become a a sprinter. Uh The brain learns. The neurons are fired together, wired together. So when you make a habit change, you make a habit change, do you know how fast neurons start to physically change in your brain? No. With a new stimulus? Two minutes. Really? Two minutes. Two minutes. So, so in, and, then, and then there are, there are subsequent changes, remarkable changes that happen even in the first two hours after a new stimulus has occurred. So remember this. Changing your mind is a physical event. Changing your mind is a physical event. You actually have to have healthy biochemistry. You have to have a healthy you know, milieu in order for that brain to change. Because that you're changing your mind, you have to actually rewire, make new connections, and then solidify and improve those connections. So when you change a habit, the initial changes happen very quickly. But if you don't reinforce that new connection, mm. it's going to pair off. Ah, you're, right. you're going to lose the connectivity there. And so it matters tremendously to be reinforced, reinforced, reinforced. And in typically uh, substantial neuroplastic changes take approximately 21 to 35 days. It depends upon the age and the health of the individual and the part of the brain that that's working. But when we start to say that, and it's fascinating, we always say many times lifestyle programs are... 30 days, 20, you know, 28 days, 30 days, 40 days. Well, that fits pretty well with neuroplasticity. So if you're going to change your habit, you need to stick with it for a period of time while you wire in those new associations. Yeah. And also, I want to say one more thing. Because when you show somebody a brain map, when you show them areas of the brain where they have poor electrical efficiency, the amount of shame and guilt that they get to let go of is amazing. Wow. All of a sudden, they're recognizing that, oh my gosh, there's this organ in my head that isn't functioning at the highest capacity it could. And, and while they are still responsible for all of their actions, they may not have the level of free will that another individual does. Mm. They may not have a healthy enough brain to be able to make choices that are in their best interest on a regular basis. And that's why I'm such a fan of neurofeedback yeah. uh, because you can just, you literally can help the brain become more electrically efficient. So you've removed one more barrier to their good intentions. You've removed a barrier to the wiring of a better behavioral output. Yeah. It's a, uh, um, so I, I think that, you know, it, the thing has been said that, you know, Psychiatrists are the only specialty that psychiatry is the only specialty where you don't examine the organ you treat. Yeah, hopefully, right? yeah. <laughs> and right, and that's silly. It's just silly now in our present day. And you can have in-office diagnostics 
that can quickly, easily, inexpensively, and safely assess the function of the not just the organ as a whole, but the neurologic system yeah. as a system. Uh, yeah, as a as a working system. Um, you said that they've compared this as an FDA algorithm with regards to performance brains or healthy brains, things like that. Has anybody out there ever looked at things like successful brains or even better, successful happy brains or meditative <laughs> brains or something like that? You know, like the, the monks of Nepal? or Absolutely. They have? Oh, Oh, absolutely. There have been many, and that's the cool thing. You can create a database from just about any group of individuals. And, and the, absolutely, the brains of a uh, long-term meditator is very different from the brain of a fighter pilot. Right. Uh, we, I, I, one of the peak performance databases that I can use for some individuals is the, uh, the group of Marine Special Forces recruits. These are wow. qualified to go into the special forces. I yeah. mean, these are some high-powered yeah. dudes, right? Absolutely. And now, that is that a normal database? No. Okay? That, and what normal means the middle of the bell curve. Yeah. And so, um, but there are, you would see a very different database if you pulled together the world's greatest pianist or if you pulled together the world's, um, you know, most successful, um, uh, the most uh, spiritually elevated um, members of the clergy, um, you know, th- there, are these, there's, there are different layers to what peak performance is. Yeah, yeah. And I love how you ask, have you, have, you, have you done databases on people who are happy? Well, I would say the monks are probably the happiest group, and, that's, and that actually has a Theta, theta gamma associations and alpha regulation. There's a, some beautiful patterns that occur mm. uh, in these monks. So, and so, interestingly enough, uh, you can train these patterns. And it's fun to actually have people who have been long-term meditators uh, engage in these types of advanced neurofeedback and go, whoa, yeah. I couldn't believe how deep I got so fast, right? So that's it's really fun. Putting supplementation, I guess, in its place, and and I totally agree with you that it's a supplement and that is not a foundational thing. One of the really great experiences I found was um, a guy who I treated um, for prostate issues, prostate cancer indeed, and he was a real narky man when I first met him. Indeed, nobody else liked him. <laughs> And they basically palmed him off to me. And I got on with him, but this man changed throughout his treatment. His his PSA mm. went down dramatically. It was incredible. But this man changed. His demeanor mm. changed. He became happy. And I don't think it was just worry. Um, you know, there was a real core change in this man. He became a quote-unquote happy, grateful man who would walk past and wave. Mm -hmm. What do you find the, is the word relevance, the place of supplementation? How powerful do you find it is given that you've put the correct foundations in place? I don't believe that supplements and McDonald's work very well together at all, but given that you've got everything in place, how powerful do you find that supplements are? Do you find they're just the, the nipping off the end of the bud, the, the tweak, or do you find that they can have a, a next hurdle? You know, like um, I guess my, well, my I, analogy I, here is sports you know, people. You know, they want the 5% or the 2%. Yeah, you know, it's uh, a great question. I think that there's too many practitioners that are overly apologetic for recommending supplements and recommending supplements at doses that are meaningful. Right. For heaven's sakes, look at the size of a plate. That's a lot. We bring in over 30 tons of food mm. through our body during a lifetime, mm. right? That is a huge amount of information that is coming through our gut, informing uh, our cells, informing our DNA of expression patterns. So um, I absolutely have found great value with supplementation. And, and I have to tell you, I used to be an anti-supplement guy. Yeah. I was at the Mayo Clinic. And I first heard about this stuff, I thought, you know, this is 
you know, that's it's a nice idea, but you know, why does everybody talk about the snake oil? Turns out there's quite a bit of omega three in snake oil. Fascinating, <laughs> huh? Anyway, but but I also <laughs> which is I thought I thought that was really pretty funny. And so but the um if you if you go back and really and ask what are the fundamental precepts of how you create health? Well, I think it's three major areas. One is you either remove a stressor or a toxin from that system. You disinhibit the network from its intelligence. Yep. Right? Or two, you can uh, teach it something new. You can break a dysfunctional cycle. That's like neurofeedback or immunotherapy or exercise. You know, you're going to give it a stressor. Or you're going to give it a challenge so that system becomes smarter, more adaptive, and breaking out of its old rut. But thirdly, it's you give the body what it needs to function. And, and some nutritional supplementation, unfortunately, because these things are shaped like pills and they look like pharmaceuticals, people have a pharmaceutical mindset to them as opposed to thinking, you know, these are amazingly concentrated foods. Mm-hmm. You know, they have been put into a form that, that is highly accessible and I don't have to taste how awful they are uh, because some of these things taste They, they taste shocking, yeah. And we wouldn't bring them into, right? We wouldn't bring them into our body terribly willingly in a Western diet. But we did bring those things into our body on a frequent basis on an ancestral diet. Mm. And so many of the ways, uh, so I use nutritional supplementation for, of course, the multivitamins and multiminerals, and certainly for uh Hope, you know, holding back the storm of the of the course of aging, the damage and degeneration of aging, but but also to send out powerful signaling messages to the body to wake up genetic complexes to perform at higher levels. You know, one of my favorite compounds is curcumin. Curcumin mm-hmm. has an amazing popping up power to it. It has a um, a multiplicity of activities of, of decreasing NF kappa B, which is one of the or decreasing the activity of NF kappa B, uh, which is one of the major inflammatory signaling pathways. Mm. Uh, it turns on uh, NRF2, which is a gene cassette that in turn turns on our antioxidant response system, helping increase glutathione peroxidase and superoxide dismutase and, and a whole host of enzymes that serve as antioxidants. Um, now, I, could, if, could I start eating turmeric and eating more curries with, with black pepper? Isn't that kind of cool that black pepper you mm. know, helps curcumin get absorbed? And that's actually how traditionally these were in foods. Mm. I love that poetry of food. Uh, but, the, but instead, um, and, and I do that. I absolutely bring that into my diet. But... I find it very convenient to be able to have that in a capsule or a pill. And then likewise, I do a lot of work with neurodegeneration and brain function. And the omega-3 fatty acids are incredibly important in proper neurologic functioning. And, and I, you know, especially with individuals who have head injuries, we will often push that dose very high, um, even up to 15 to 20 grams of EPA, DHA a day. Yes, I mean, that is a massive dose. And that's, you know, those are highly selected cases, and we're following them carefully. But the amount of brain awakening that can occur um, has blown my mind. Yeah. So we need to think of foods, of these nutritional supplements, not as drugs. You know, they're not forcing the body to do something. Uh, but instead, they are nurturing agents. Yeah. And, uh, and proper dosing should be, and I think these things should be overseen by knowledgeable individuals, and not just a, uh, you know, somebody who's marketing it on the internet, mm. right? Mm. So, Absolutely. Um, so, so it's a, I'm very thankful. I get results that I could never get without nutritional supplementation. Uh, I've got to ask: when you see some of this negative research out there, do you think there's mischief or is it ignorance? Oh, so haven't I been talking about bias the entire time I've been on the call? <laughs> yes, you just reminded me now. So, Thank so you. So I don't, I don't, believe me, 
I, I, I think of my medical school classmates, and and while they practice very differently from me, uh, they're just some of the best group of humans I've ever known in my life. Yeah. And so, do I believe that there, by and large, there is some plot? No, not at all. However, let's let's step back and look at things from a uh, a structure standpoint. In the in the you know, late seventies and eighties, the U.S. cut a lot of its public funding to medical schools, and the medical schools had to scramble for financing. And so, the one place they could get private financing was the drug companies. Right. You know, before that time, it was kind of low end to be doing drug research. You know, the the good professors always got federal grants. And, you know, they would do research, and there's a ton of nutritional research coming out in the 70s and early 80s. Mm. And then, but when medical schools had to fend for themselves in the States, um, all of a sudden the pharmaceutical industry rises up. And so if you can't have a patent on something, uh, you know, the question no longer became, uh, is it useful, but rather, is it patentable? And then, (laughs) is it useful? And, And so since, you know, Nutritional products are not patentable, by and large. Uh, they fell by the wayside, mm. and they certainly didn't have the funding that was there. And so now, you have the highest-end professors getting their funding from drug companies. Well, neurons that fire together are wired together. Mm. And, and what you know, you become, you develop a, uh, an affinity for. Yeah. And so, you actually start to see data in a different way. Our, our opinions shape how we actually bring in different sets of data. So I'm always amazed to see different meta-analyses on the same topic come up with such very different results because of the presuppositions of the individuals that created that study. So I don't believe there's malicious intent. As a matter of fact, what I've seen in my 20 years in this field has been massive progress and shifting. I have so many conventional colleagues that are my patients. They're taking supplements, take way more supplements than I do. And, and you know, <laughs> now, do they recommend them to their patients? Not yet. Right. They don't, actually. They don't bring them up. And, you know, some of them, you know uh, one of them is a pure hypocrite, actually. <laughs> <laughs> he actually tells people not to take them. And but he does himself. He's got a huge list that he's uh, incredibly, incredibly ardent on. And, you know, but, but that's only going to persist for a time, you know, and, and that will soon change. Well, he's in a, he's in an, he's in a, position where it would actually endanger his job if he came out yeah. to, to make that particular yeah. uh, issue. And, you know, in medical school, it was said, you know, the, the, the only progress that happens in healthcare is when enough old doctors die. Right. And that's where, then that's literally what is happening. And there's a changing of the guard and um, the understanding of precision medicine, um, systems-based medicine, um, is winning the day because it's a better descriptor of reality. And nutrition and what we put in our mouths and the toxins that we're afflicted by, all of those things are part of reality. And we can no longer just step aside and not account for them and believe that this magic pill is going to cure the ill. We have to instead um, embrace the mystery of human health. And and this is why artificial intelligence, or what I like to call augmented intelligence, is so important, mm-hmm. because it's going to allow us to account for those multiplicity of data points that we in our human minds can't hold on to simultaneously. And it's going to help us start to sort through some of these pre-set points, these biases. And, and as a result, we're going to start having different answers Answers that come out of complexity rather than reductionism. And, and I'm going to guarantee you that the answers that have come out are going to be relatively simple. Yeah. They're not going to be this magic potion, but rather a whole food diet yeah. eaten in love and community and uh, with activity and sunlight. We're going to find that the health outcomes of those types of interventions are drastically more efficacious uh, in in time and human effort than other things. So I'm very hopeful for the future. Uh, I think that we're at incredible tipping point. It's just amazing to get to be alive at this point in time and to witness these changes that are going on in healthcare. Um, and and 
and I, I bless all of those who have uh, different viewpoints than myself uh, because they continue to teach me uh, on what I do not know and make me aware of my blind spots. So that's, that's what science is, right? We need, <laughs> you have to have, uh, you have to have open discussion and uh, engage with full heart and full mind uh, and be fascinated with uh, a better outcome. David Hussey, you are a, the epitome of a functional medicine practitioner. And by that, I mean everything has a function. But you, you embrace things with such humility and care, obvious care for your patients, not for you to do something to them, but for them to realise something for themselves. And I just, I so, I like, I'm giving you a virtual hug here over the phone, over the miles and miles. I, I so have Ooh, loved... Feel good. Feel oh, good, Art. Feel good. I so, <laughs> I so have loved talking with you. And I, I really want to delve further into other conditions where we can talk about specific black boxes, let's call them black boxes, and how you approach them from a truly holistic um, framework. I'd love to delve into that. Um, at another date, if that's all right with you. That sounds great. I think there's many follow-up conversations. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Dr. David Hussey, thank you. Great spending time with you, Art. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Don't forget to visit fxmedicine.com.au for today's show notes, extra research, and other resources.